Good morning, everyone. Please join me in prayer. Lord, help to empower us this morning to fully understand and fully embrace the totality of the loving purpose flowing from your heart. Be with us as we read these words and guide our hearts, our souls, and our minds to hear and live your message. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Zach. Good morning, everybody. If you can pray for me, my name is Steve O. Yang, and I'm filling in for Chris today. And uh, I think I forgot my sermon stuff already. So, it's all right. Uh, I was thinking as I was listening to Luciana share with the kids, those kids are so cute. And I couldn't help but smile at their cuteness. And uh, I was reminded that our Lord God sees us with delight. And uh, I want to pray for you, and I want to invite you to pray for me now, uh, to spend a brief moment just asking God for faith to believe that very thing, uh, so that His Spirit can speak to us and we can hear His Word. Let's do that together. Heavenly Father, we ask for your spirit to open our eyes, to allow us to see and to hear you, your voice. Lord Jesus, you are the one we need to learn from. It is your voice we need to hear. And I ask, Holy Spirit, you will connect that to our hearts, that our hearts may overflow with your love. I pray for those here who are hurting, for those who are discouraged. I pray that you would shine a light of love of Christ upon us. Holy Spirit, if you do not show up, my words will fall to the ground. won't change us. Only your word can do that. Only your spirit can do so. So we ask as humbly as we know how, would you do that for us here this morning? And in your son's name we pray. Amen. I think 
that the biggest misnomer in all foods is the fortune cookie. <laughs> First of all, it seems more like a cracker than it does a cookie. Secondly, it's not always the case you get a fortune or anything that's really all life-changing. I was browsing through the internet this week, and here are some examples I found. You will never know your full potential until you try. You will inherit some money or a small piece of land. You will gain admiration from your peers. When in anger, sing the alphabet. You love Chinese food. Someone will invite you to a karaoke party. Here are the winning lottery numbers. 4, 8, 15, 23, 16, 42. The fortune you seek is in another cookie. And I like this one because it's kind of creepy. Don't forget, you are always on our minds. I was intrigued when I came across a Reader's Digest article entitled, 13 Fortune Cookies Literally Changed People's Lives. I learned that a blogger named Jillian came across a fortune cookie that unveiled the message, if you carry your childhood with you, you never become older. In her blog, she disclosed that she was battling with PTSD from her bad relationship with her father, and at the age of 50, her past issues were holding her back. And she claimed that this fortune cookie was instrumental for her to let go of her past and move forward. And I couldn't help but think, good for her. I'm glad that helped. What if, when we come to a crossroads in life, we had something to sway us on a better path? to lead us past an emotional roadblock, to move our career forward, to confirm a tough family decision? What if we could gain the right outlook in life, the right philosophy to be content with where we are, or simply make life better? We are a reckless people in need of a timely word. Wouldn't it be great if we could fortuitously come across a timely message a word of advice, a pearl of wisdom to help us in times of need. Wouldn't it be great to have a timely word to relieve us, to do something for us and in us? Pastor Chris gave me the opportunity and privilege to share from God's word today and next week. So I decided to look at two passages in the life of Jesus to look at his life his interactions and teachings to help unveil something that might help us. And today we come to a passage in Mark chapter 12 where we have a religious and moral man looking for some pearl of wisdom, some timely fortune, some good advice that would help answer his life's basic questions. How do I measure up? How do I measure up? I mean, that's the, what's the right rubric upon which I am graded and how do I know if I passed? For many of us, we came in this morning with such lingering questions unanswered. We are a restless people looking for a word to relieve us and to do something for us and in us. So this morning, I want to ask two questions to line up my train of thought and to help us follow where we are going. First, 
How do we measure up? How do we measure up? And secondly, what does the gospel have to say? What word does the gospel have to say for us this morning? First, how do we measure up? How do we measure up? Now, when we come to this passage, Jesus had recently cleansed the temple in dramatic fashion, flipping over tables, showing his displeasure of corrupt transactions of temple merchandise. This event spurs a series of interactions with various factions of the Sanhedrin, and they come to confront Jesus' authority. Who do you think you are? And after several debates with the Herodians and Pharisees, Jesus' answers seem to impress a particular scribe. He is not named, but being a scribe, he would have been deeply religious and considered among the morally elite. As a teacher of the law, he would have been a devout student of the Old Testament scriptures. By some counts, there would have been up to 613 Old Testament laws. 613 is a pretty big number. And so it was common practice to categorize which laws were heavier, those that carried more weight and were more serious, and which laws were lighter, maybe not as important as some others. This man would have been extremely preoccupied to know where each law ranked in terms of importance. And so, being impressed with Jesus' knowledge of Scripture, he comes to Jesus hoping for some pearl of wisdom. And unlike others before him, we don't pick up any hostility in the inquiry. He asks a fair question. Jesus, which commandment is the most important? Help me prioritize. I want to know what is the basic and the bottom line. And keep it sweet short and simple. What is behind the question? It is a desire to know how he is measuring up. So in his response, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament law and gives an answer about the necessity to love. A demand to love sounds sort of puzzling, but joining law and love together is as if he says, you must love. Jesus knew that the law of God was never meant to be divorced from genuine, heartfelt love. Jesus says that the greatest commandment has everything to do with loving God and neighbor. And what is required is not any kind of love, but a love of a particular kind. And as we look at Jesus' answer, we must honestly ask ourselves, how do we measure up to God's standards according to Jesus. And as we dive in, I want us to notice three things about this particular kind of love that's required of us. The intimacy, the purity, and the totality. First, I want us to notice the intimacy. Jesus begins by quoting the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. At this point, Jesus would have received many affirming nods from the crowd because it would have been the best-known passage in all the Jewish scriptures. The Shema would have been recited by devout Jews twice a day to remind them that God had a personal history with his people. He was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who delivered his people from bondage in real time and real space and continued 
to preserve them. Notice the personal pronouns. The Lord, our God, is one. You shall love the Lord, your God. He is not some concept or force or some abstract entity. He is not an idea we assemble together or a set of propositions to debate. But he is a person. And a person can be known, loved, worshipped. My friend years ago found this on the internet and sent this to me, and I'll read it to you. Let me be clear, this is not biblical. Here it is. And Jesus said unto them, And whom do you say that I am? They replied, You are the eschatological manifestation of the ground of our being, the ontological foundation of the context of our very selfhood revealed. And Jesus replied, What? (laughs) I like that. Our love for God cannot be abstract, but it must be characterized by a deep intimacy. Next, I want you to notice the source. Now, in this passage, Jesus uses a certain preposition four times. It carries the meaning of source. It means out of. We are to love God out of our whole heart, out of our whole soul, out of our whole mind, and out of our whole strength. It carries the meaning of source rather than merely mode. For Jesus is not a merely of how we love or that we love, but it's a matter of why we love. Jesus looks at from where love comes, and it must come from the bottom of our hearts. For Jesus, motivation matters above everything. Most of us don't think this way. We are not conditioned to do so. We normally think of a good person as someone who follows the customs and rules of society. We hardly consider what goes on inside the heart. William Hordern argues that this is the way of society. He gives this example. He says, The law enforcement institutions of society are concerned with right behavior. They do not care why people obey the law so long as they do obey it. The person who breaks no laws is righteous in their sight, regardless of the motivation that produces the law-abiding behavior, end quote. Now, most parents, if we're honest with ourselves, would be completely happy to raise kids who do the right thing regardless of motivation. Sometimes when I'm on a long car ride with my family, I play this game with my kids called Who Can Stay Quiet? the longest. You all know that one. I always tell them that the winner gets some sort of reward to be disclosed later. When they were younger, I would reward them with a cookie. And the motivation seemed to work for a while until I started to tell them that their only reward was an attaboy or props. And I would give them a fist bump. Here are your props. They weren't too keen on that one. Now they demand to know the reward before they comply. If my head hurts enough, I'll just bribe them with money. And I think they figured me out. And now we just end up negotiating. I think the last trip, $5 bought me 20 minutes of peace and quiet. (laughs) But does a cookie or an Abe Lincoln 
really engender a good motivation. Now, if motivation matters above everything, then this ought to be disturbing because it pretty much ruins every kind and loving act that I've ever done. If our love is tainted by self-gain, it's not coming from the bottom of the heart out of genuine love for God and neighbor. So, how are we measuring up now? In addition to intimacy and source, I want us to notice the totality of what Jesus commands. I find it striking that the scribe comes to Jesus looking for one answer, and Jesus sort of gives him two. He asks for one command, the greatest command, the first command, and Jesus answers him not with one, but gives him two commands. Jesus quotes two different passages from Moses, and he joins them together. Verse 29, Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment, singular, greater than these, plural. What Jesus does is he makes the two commandments inseparable, meaning we cannot claim to love God and yet hate our neighbor. First John tells us that if we claim to love God and yet hate our brother, we deceive ourselves. Loving God and neighbor is a package deal. God requires such love in its totality. Love God always. Love others always. All the time. With every fiber. Jesus says that what is required is not the bare minimum, but what is required is that we go the extra mile. If anyone wants to take your shirt, well, give them also your coat. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Jesus goes so far as to say we ought to pray for our enemies. And we're not talking a half-hearted prayer, but a prayer that genuinely desires with every fiber of our being for the good of our enemies, regardless of how they treat us. We cannot pick and choose who's worthy of our love or ask the question, what's in it for me? So how are we measuring up? Are we cutting it? When we see what Jesus actually means, it's not so easy anymore, is it? If we're listening to Jesus' answer the way it was intended, I think an expected emotion might be that of discomfort, if not flat-out shock. After all, notice the reaction of the people. After that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. If we're hearing what Jesus is saying, then it ought to make us very uncomfortable because the implication is that all the good things I've done for God and others aren't really all that good. God's law is not something we can pull off. Our, our motivations will never be all that pure, and purity is what God demands. God requires a love that we cannot give. 
Like the scribe, perhaps we came in here this morning looking for relief, looking for a fortune, a good word. We were hoping for a sermon to make things easier, but things got a lot harder. We were hoping to make things lighter, but things got a lot heavier. The greatest commandment, to love God always. Sounds nice on a Hallmark card, but if we hear what we are meant to hear, those are some terrifying words. Love. Always. Love God always. God requires a love that we cannot give. Where is the good news in all this? If that is not the last word, then what else is there? What about the gospel? I think that's what we need here. So what does the gospel have to say? What does the gospel have to say for us here this morning? Jesus wants to offer relief this morning. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Maybe like the scribe, we came in here this morning wanting to know what's that one thing I need to work on this week? What's that one thing, the bare minimum, I need to be certain that I've done enough and receive a passing grade? What's the one thing to unlock it all and make everything better? Jesus gives the scribe perhaps more than he bargained for. Jesus lays down the law. And God requires a love that we cannot give. And at this, the scribe, I love his response, starting in verse 22. Well said, teacher. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love one's neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. The scribe essentially says, you're right, Jesus. It, it has to be more than that. I've been wondering about that too. The scribe knows that it is not enough to go through the motions of external forms or empty religion. Doing something right for all the wrong reasons can't be enough. There has to be more to it than that. If our hearts aren't in it, then it can't mean much. If we have come to understand that God's demand to love him and always, it really ought to crush us. Jesus' standards have always been high. He said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He meant it. That's the standard upon which we are measured. Jesus does not simply ask us to do our best or put in a solid effort. He has a way of making the hurdle too high for us, doesn't he? God demands that we love God always. We don't like this, do we? We'd rather be graded on a curve. We'd rather lower God's demand water down God's law, and make the great commandment just a little bit lighter. We'd rather make it slightly more attainable so that, we, so that the greatest commandment might carry the meaning like this. Give it your best shot and put in a solid effort. But when we do this, we end up with what I call a Diet Coke gospel. A Diet Coke gospel. I got this notion from a man named Todd Brewer. He says this, 
At every turn, the unseasonable morality of Jesus is made more appealing by weakening its uncompromising demands. Like a diet soda, it has a similar taste to seem like the real thing, but with half the guilt and no nutritional value. The now tame Jesus becomes practical with very little to offend. A diet soda version of Jesus' ethics might be more palatable, but it only gives the impression that one is really doing the one is really doing what Jesus asked. It fools one into believing Jesus walked around Galilee making fairly reasonable requests that any sane person would not only agree to, but easily do with marginal effort. Accordingly, the law isn't all that difficult to keep, and Jesus isn't much a savior, nor is he all that profound, making, appearing more like a benevolent life coach who gives you simple pointers on your backswing, end quote. You see, if we make God's demand more attainable, we end up with a Jesus we don't really need. Perhaps we could use a sprinkle of Jesus, a refresher course, a dose of his teachings, a loving example, a good coach, a little inspiration, a motivational speech, a how-to manual, an occasional pat on the back. But you know what we don't need? We don't end up needing a savior, a substitute. The Apostle Paul, coming to this realization, says in his letter to the Galatians, if righteousness could be gained through the law or attained by what we do, then Christ died for nothing. Do you see this? If we reduce the demand, we end up with a mediocre love for Jesus at best. At the scribe's growing realization that God demands more than a heartless obedience, Jesus tells him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're on the right track. You're almost there. You are not far from the kingdom of God. What Jesus is not saying is, you're a pretty decent guy. Your love is almost pure. Just try a little harder and I think you'll get there. He's not saying that at all. Rather, he is pointing out that the scribe is on the right track and starting to see that the demand of love that God requires is too high for him to attain. That there could be nothing in us to manufacture that sort of love. He is starting to understand that no external form of religion, no act of service, no effort on his part will ever make his love all that pure. And purity is the very thing that God requires. Love. Always those two words do not apply to him. That sort of love cannot come from within. So if our love could never be pure enough, then what hope do we have? Again, I want to return to the question, what will we do with this Jesus? My son asked me this, uh, this week, of all the world religions, which was the fastest growing one? I wanted him to see that Christianity wasn't really in the same category as all these religions he's hearing about. Christianity, I told him, is unique. Because religion offers 
good advice and tells us what we need to do. Christianity offers good news. It's not advice. It is news. It gives us a person. It declares that God himself came and human flesh in real time and real space to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Those two words, love, always, they apply to Jesus. He loved God always. He loves us always. Nothing else can fulfill the law. No one else can love in the way that God demands. We can't. But Jesus has. And because he has, we are free. Free. Free to love God and free to love neighbor. The high-octane gospel elicits love as a response. This is why the gospel can't be one of many things we do here at Middle Street. It needs to be everything we do. We need to talk about Jesus and his love again and again, sermon after sermon, small group after small group, lunch after lunch, discussion after discussion, week by week, day by day. When we teach our children, we can't just be telling kids how to be a good, nice, decent pe- person. We, can't, we don't need Jesus for that. A lot of other stuff for that. We don't need Jesus for that. We need to offer our kids primarily the good news, not merely good advice. If we're leading a ministry where we're recruiting for Sunday school or for nursery, trying to recruit musicians for worship or for sound, let's not forget that our love is a response to God's love. At Middle Street, we don't ever want to guilt people into service. We want to talk about God's love over and over. My prayer for this church, for my church, for our church, is that we become a people who never tire, who never tire about hearing about, talking about, rejoicing about the love of God. Because that's what changes us. We love because Christ has fulfilled the law. We love because he first loved us. The high-octane gospel elicits love as a response. Now, my wife, Kendra, and I are grateful to be the parents of two amazing kids, Karis and Judah. And when they were toddlers, Kendra would go baby shopping. Just This was before Amazon. She would go from store to store and hunt for the next best thing. She would dress them up in these cute onesies, and I would absolutely chuckle at the clothes because she would, she would put them in onesies that said stuff like this, Team Mommy, or My Dad Rocks. We knew that it was a little bit self-promotional, but we thought it was cute. And at the time, we knew that the clothes we forced them in didn't necessarily represent how we, they really felt about us. They didn't really have a say about what they wore. And as they got a little bit older, we would ask them to learn our names, say mama, say dada. And I'd say, 
Daddy loves you. Do you love Daddy? And, and we teach them, teach them to nod up and down like this, or, or, or like this, uh, so, that they, we, so they would basically affirm how we wanted them to feel about us. But I must admit in reflection that it wasn't really real. It was kind of forced and manufactured, kind of. But our dream was that one day there would come a day where they'd look into our eyes with sincerity and they would burst out, Daddy, I love you. You rock. Or, I want to be on Mommy's team. I want to be on Mommy's team. Because that's when it counts. When it's genuine, heartfelt, spontaneous, organic. Now, what would it take for our hearts to be melted where our love for God and others was not like pulling teeth, but it came as a natural overflow of the heart where it became worship? Nothing less and nothing more than the high-octane gospel. You see, there is one who obeyed God with pure motives from the bottom of his heart. Every breath he took was out of love for the Father, and every step he took was vicarious, selfishly in place of others. And as he sweat blood in a garden, he prayed, not my will be done, but yours. As he was flogged and beaten, he turned the other cheek, and carrying a cross on his back, he went the extra mile, silent as a lamb to the slaughter. And on the cross, we hear him praying for his enemies, Forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Before his prosecutors show any sign of remorse, we see this genuine, heartfelt prayer for their good. This sort of love for his enemies took nothing less than all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, and all of his strength. And when we see that on the cross he willingly stayed with his hands held high, not to worship, but to fulfill the law with his love, for love for the Father and for love for us, that's when our hearts melt. That's when the heart leaps, when the heart skips. That's when we can readily join in the choir of God's people and sing from the heart, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. The high-octane gospel elicits, elicits love as a response. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, only you can do the very thing that your word was intended for each of us. So we ask that you would do that very thing. For those who need to hear your favor, your love, shower us, encourage us. For those who are beating ourselves up, we ask that you allow us to see Jesus. Maybe here who does not know Jesus who have not yet thrown themselves with you, we ask that you would show them that it is good news, that the love of Jesus becomes so beautiful and sweet that they cannot help but to fall at your feet. It is in your son's name we pray.
Amen.